Praise the Lord. What a lovely and beautiful song declaring how great is our God. I will now invite our Pastor Caroline to come and uh, wrap it up the book of Ephesians today. Well, finally, we have reached the end of our series on Ephesians. It's the last part, and that's what we generally mean when we use the word finally, isn't it? And there's something of that sense here because the Apostle Paul is about to pen that last part of his letter to the church in Ephesus. But the word with which he introduces um, this little passage for us today translates literally to as for the rest or as for what remains. And so the main purpose of that word here is to link what's about to be said with all that's gone before it. Because of everything that I've already told you, this now is what you need to know. This is what remains. This little passage with its engaging combat metaphor is much maligned because it's often pulled out of context and read as a standalone piece. And it's used by all sorts of Christians to justify all sorts of beliefs and behaviours. But that little word finally emphasises that we can't do that. This passage is meant to be read as a part of the whole. It is both the conclusion and the climax to this second half of the letter. Chapters 1 to 3, as I am sure you're probably all by now sick of us repeating, are full of doctrine. And the climax of those chapters is God's great plan to gather all people, Jews and Gentiles, under Christ with the intention being that through the church, his manifold wisdom would be on show. And as you might recall, back at the very beginning of the book of Ephesians, we discussed Paul's use of this phrase. So we are to have the manifold wisdom of God on show to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. And when we talked about that back at the beginning of the book, uh, we learned that this refers not to heaven, but to that spiritual dimension in which God and all of the spiritual powers, both good and evil, and all of the believers exist together. And it is in this realm that we enjoy all of those great blessings um, that were mentioned in, in the first part of the book, but it's also the dimension where we engage in a very real battle for souls with the demonic powers. And so it is in this realm that we, the church, are to be held up like a trophy to display that wisdom of God. We are to show Satan and all the evil powers, as well as the angels, this wisdom of God. And it is quite a privilege and quite a responsibility. And so because of that, most of the rest of the book was about relationships and behaviour within Christian families and within the wider Christian community that would ensure that the church does indeed display that wisdom of God. And we often call that part duty. So we've got doctrine and we've got duty. Now here in this final section, Paul is about to explain the how of all of this, how all of this will be possible for us. 
And this passage is all about spiritual warfare, but that little word finally anchors it to its context. Spiritual warfare doesn't happen in some kind of otherworldly, mysterious sort of spiritual place. It happens in the everydayness of Christian life. The results of our day-to-day battle against the spiritual forces of evil, they'll be evident in our personal lives. They'll be evident in our relationships. They'll be evident within our families and our workplaces and they will most certainly be evident for better or for worse within the body of Christ. Now we're going to tackle this text in two parts this morning. The bulk of it, Ephesians 6, 10 to 20, uh, we'll deal with first and that's going to take the bulk of our time together but it's important that we don't overlook those last couple of verses, those final greetings because they're part of the letter and they often can contain little gems of information and today is no exception. So let's listen together as that first part of the text, Ephesians 6, 10 to 20, is read for us now. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God. So when the day of evil comes, para poder mantenerse firme. And after you've done everything, to stand. To stand. To stand. Mantente firme. So stand firm then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. With the breastplate of righteousness in place. And your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to this, take up the shield of faith in which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take on the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Pray also for me. For me. For me. For me. Pray for me also. Pray for me. Pray for me also. Pray for me. Ora por mí también. Pray also for me. Pray for me that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Well, I hope that that form of reading gives you some sense of the everydayness of this battle with which we are engaged. You know, all through my teens, my sport of choice was hockey. I never really set out for it to be that way. I'd never played the game at school. I didn't know anyone else who played. In fact, I didn't know anything about the game. But I did happen to live not very far away from uh, a hockey pitch. And one day when I was out walking the dog, I was drawn by the clash of sticks, the thwack of the stick against the ball, the thud of the ball against the back of the goal and the noise of the small crowd that were there. And so 
I decided that I'd go and have a look and one thing led to another. And later that next week, I found myself with a borrowed stick in my hand, uh, turning up at the, uh, the girls, the junior girls training session. And it wasn't long after that, that I found myself as part of a team. And I played for quite a number of years after that. For those that don't know hockey, there are 11 players on a team. 10 field players and one goalkeeper. And on our team, with only one exception, most of us could play more than one role. Usually we stuck to either offence or defence, but within that, we could move around a little bit. The exception was our goalkeeper. She loved her role and she was really good at it. And to be honest, the rest of us had no intention of going anywhere near those goals. In fact, we were terrified at the prospect of having to fill in for her whenever she was away. Now, our goalkeeper was great, but she was no superwoman and sometimes she got sick. Sometimes she had to go on holidays. Sometimes she had a big exam the next day. And then the debating and cajoling that would go on between us to try and prove why each of us was not suitable to play the goalkeeping role or why it couldn't possibly be our turn to do it again. Eventually, someone would be roped into the task and fortunately my first turn fell on a night at training. We were having a training match, so the results didn't really matter. And truth be known, having spent all of my time in hockey, uh, directing most of my efforts to bashing that ball as hard as I could in the direction of the goalkeeper, the only result I cared about was keeping myself safe on that particular night. Now our goalkeeper had an enormous kit bag and it contained all of her goalkeeping equipment which she attended to carefully. And whenever she was going to be away, she always made sure that that precious bag was delivered either to one of our houses or to the club, club rooms so that it could be worn by whoever was filling her shoes. I guess having stood in those goals for so many years, facing hard plastic balls coming at her at about 100 kilometres an hour in every direction, having done that, I guess there was no way that she was going to let any one of us stand there without the proper equipment. So on this particular night, the bag was delivered into my hands and I reluctantly got into the gear to perform my duty. First, I pulled on the padded shorts, which have some sort of compressed foam sewn into them in strips. Next, the huge chest protector was, with its padded arms and shoulders was pulled over me. Then came the leg guards, and they resemble cricket pads, for those familiar with cricket. And then the kickers, which are big compressed overshoes, which your own shoes strap into. Then the great big helmet with its face cage. Don't forget to put the mouth guard in first. I was always very dubious as to why, if I had this huge protective cage around my face, why did I actually need the mouth guard? But I wasn't going to ask questions at that point. And finally, the great big padded gloves were pulled over and a stick was put in my hand and I was ready to go. And I can remember standing in the goals for that first time, facing the opposition team as they came thundering down the field towards me. 
and, you, and you're sort of standing like this with your stick in your hand and I remember them getting past our midfield and me having this overwhelming desire to want to run and hide behind the goals. But knowing that I needed to stand there and protect the goals for the team. I watched as the back line was beaten and then there was nothing between them and the goals except for me. I'd missed my opportunity to go and stand behind the goals. It was too late. I wanted to close my eyes and hope that it would all go away. But tentatively, I shot my foot forward. Somehow, it managed to connect with the ball, just as the striker's stick connected with my leg. I could feel the force of both blows, but there was no pain. It wasn't a great save. I was much too tentative, and they were coming back at me again. This time I kicked harder and managed to clear the ball out of the circle. And with each successful defence, my confidence grew until I actually felt empowered enough to begin to use all of that gear to my own advantage. And why I'm telling you all this is because all I know about Roman soldiers is what I've read about them. I've never met one. I've never spoken to one. But the Apostle Paul had spent a large part of his time around them and he had had no doubt plenty of time to study them and perhaps he'd had some interesting conversations with some of them during his time in detention. Now I don't know what it feels like to face the enemy as a Roman soldier armed for battle but I can tell you exactly what it feels like to face an aggressive forward line coming at you wielding sticks and firing a ball at sort of a similar size to a, and weight to a cricket ball, but it's lined with hard plastic like a golf ball. Initially, it's terrifying. But as your confidence in your equipment grows and as you learn how to use it, you can see how it's possible to stand firm and to prevail in the face of oncoming attack. Our struggle, says Paul, as Christians, is not against flesh and blood. It's not against people. At times, it might seem like we're opposing people, those who seek to deceive or to persecute the church or spread lies or those who might have it in for us personally. But they're not the real enemy here. We oppose the evil powers behind them who oppose God and seek ultimately to cause people to abandon their faith in him. We oppose them, but we need not fear them because our victory is already assured. You know, early on the 6th of June in 1944, Allied airborne forces parachuted into drop zones across the north of France. They parachuted in ahead of some 150,000 Allied troops who would come in off about 5,000 ships and landing craft onto the beaches of Normandy that same day. They were there to fight Nazi Germany and to liberate Europe from Hitler. We know that day as D-Day. And their landing into Europe on D-Day effectively secured victory for the Allies. And they knew it. Yet there would be plenty more fighting in the year that lay ahead and there would be plenty more allied casualties before they would reach Berlin 
and the Germans would eventually surrender almost a year later. The day of surrender, the 8th of May 1945, we call VE Day because it's the day of the Allies' victory in Europe. Well, D-Day for Satan and his foes came with the death and resurrection of Christ. That was when the victory was won. But it won't be fully realised until Christ comes again. And so until then, the battle will continue to be fought by believers against the spiritual forces of evil. But victory is already assured. And when, it, when he returns, it won't just be VE Day, victory in Europe and return to peace for a time. It'll be EE Day, the end of evil and the coming of the kingdom of God in all of its fullness and with it peace that is everlasting. You know, shortly before his troops stormed those beaches on Normandy, General Dwight Eisenhower issued a letter to them. And in it, he told them that victory was expected, but he also warned them of the reality of the battles that would lie ahead of them. He wrote, Your task will not be an easy one. Your enemy is well-trained, well-equipped and battle-hardened. He will fight savagely. And the Apostle Paul is saying much the same thing to believers in our text today as he urges us to put on the full armour of God so that we can take a stand against the devil's schemes. Now, if you've ever had to stand and keep goals in hockey or maybe ice hockey, you would know what a frightening thing it is. And if you imagine trying to do it with just this stick, there's no hiding behind this stick. It doesn't cover much. You've got that little ball. It's coming at you super fast, speeds of 100 kilometres an hour. It's hard and it's heavy and it doesn't just stay on the ground. In fact, as um, a forward line, we would try to flick the ball up high because it was much harder to be defended when it was off the ground. And our goalkeeper knew that. And so she wasn't going to let any one of her teammates stand unprotected in those goals. So she ensured that her own precious kit bag was passed on to us for our personal use. And in the same way, our Heavenly Father doesn't just ask us to stand and face the enemy without supplying us everything that we're going to need to do it. We're told here to be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power, but those are not empty or hopeful words. And he proceeds to explain the two ways that we can do that. And the first of those ways is by suiting up in all of the armour that he has supplied for us. And this isn't just armour that he gives to us or that he's got for us. It is, like our goalkeepers, it is his own precious kit bag containing the armour that God himself has worn. And the imagery here is vivid and Paul has drawn much of it from several passages in Isaiah. Let me read just one of them to you. Isaiah 59, 15 to 17. The Lord looked 
and was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one and he was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his own arm achieved salvation for him and his own righteousness sustained him. He put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. This is the armour that God himself wears. So we know that it's effective. And the purpose of this armour? Well, just as my goalkeeping protective suit was there to help me stand firm against the oncoming uh, team, the armour of God is there to enable Christians to stand firm against the rulers and authorities and powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Stand firm is the purpose of the armour and Paul says it four times. You'll find it there in verse 11, in verse 13, in verse 14. Twice it comes in verse 13. So let's have a look briefly at each of these items in our armour. The first item Paul talks about is a belt of truth buckled around our waists. Now for the Roman soldier, his belt secured his tunic. It kept it out of the way so that he wasn't going to trip over it and wouldn't hamper his movement. But it also held the breastplate firmly in place and it held the sheath for the sword. So the belt, therefore, was an integral part of his kit and it had a number of different uses. The belt of the Christian is composed of truth. The truth of God revealed to us in his word and also expressed in our character when we submit to that word. Satan seeks to deceive. He'll use lies, he'll use false teaching and he'll try to make us doubt what we believe. And he'll use more lies and false accusations to try and attack our character. That's why we need the truth of God's word and the integrity of our character fastened around our waist firmly. The breastplate of righteousness comes straight from that Isaiah passage that I read earlier, Isaiah 59, 17. Isaiah promised a saviour who would put on righteousness as his breastplate. We are made righteous in him, so it is Christ's breastplate of righteousness that we pull on and it protects us from Satan's condemnation. For the Roman soldier, of course, the breastplate was perhaps the most important piece of his armour because it protected the vital organs. And that's where Satan wants to direct his attack, right at the heart of our faith, as he tries to convince us that we aren't good enough and that our sins are too great. The breastplate of righteousness reminds us that our righteousness depends only on the saving work of Christ on the cross. On our feet, we're told to wear the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Now, Roman soldiers wore heavy sandals on their feet with uh, a leather thong that, that tied up their calf. The soles were made of several thick layers of leather and they were studded a little bit like today's football boots are. The reason, of course, being for traction 
and to prevent slipping and falling in the heat of battle. Isaiah 52, 7 says, How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. And that good news that Jesus brought was a message of peace. Back in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 17, we read that he came and preached peace to those who were far away and peace to those who were near. That peace with God that Christ has secured for us is our foothold against Satan. With our feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace, we won't slip up when Satan tries to convince us that God will reject us when we sin. Because we know that our peace with God is secure, that gives us confidence and we can take that peace to others. The next item that's described here is the shield of faith with which you can distinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And this is an image that Paul has adapted um, from the shields that the Roman soldiers carried. They carried a large sort of curved shield. It was about 1.5 metres high and it was curved around their bodies. And it was covered in leather and that leather was often soaked in water before the battle so that when the, the flaming arrows of the enemy, they would often um, dip their arrows and, and set them on fire. When they came towards them, the, the wetness of that damp leather would put out the flaming arrows as they came. And those soldiers would often stand in formation in a, in a line behind the front row behind their, their shields and the second row behind them would put the shields overhead and maybe the third row as well, and they would advance as a group, like a boxed-in group, towards uh, the enemy line. Proverbs 30, verse 5, describes God as a shield to all who take refuge in him. Faith is our shield that enables us to trust God to bring us through every trial and temptation. It is through faith that the enemy's flaming lies and schemes that come raining down on us will be extinguished. The helmet of salvation again comes from Isaiah's promise of a saviour who would wear just such a helmet. Satan loves to mess with our minds, doesn't he? The, the helmet of salvation protects the mind from the evil one who will do everything that he can to have us doubt that we really are saved. The helmet reminds us that if we have come to Christ seeking his forgiveness and asking him to be the Lord of our lives, then we are saved and our future is eternally secure. So put on the helmet and be confident in your salvation. Stand firm and don't allow Satan to mess with your mind. The last item in the goalkeeping kit was that trusty stick. Likewise, the last item of gear the Roman soldier needed was his trusty sword. The sword and the stick can both be used defensively, but they're also strong offensive items. The only way you can score a goal in hockey is by batting that ball with the stick towards the goal. 
And the only way to advance in battle as a Roman soldier was through hand-to-hand combat with the sword. The Christian sword is the word of God. And Paul's use of rima here for word rather than logos emphasises that it's the expression of that word that he's talking about. We're not just to know and understand the word of God, we are to express it, to use it as a weapon against the forces of evil. And wasn't Jesus the master of doing that when tempted by the devil? Isaiah spoke of a servant whose mouth would be like a sharpened sword. Isaiah 49.2. Three times Satan came to tempt Jesus in the wilderness and three times Jesus used scripture. Now I've never really had much opportunity to use a Roman sword. I imagine that none of you have. But I imagine that like a hockey stick, it takes a bit of practice before it feels natural in your hand and so too with God's word. It'll be near impossible to use it well if you don't know it and if you're not familiar with it. So we need to take time to become familiar with it, to memorise it, to spend time in God's word so that we can use it. A hockey player who never puts stick to ball or a soldier who never takes the sword out of its sheath is useless to the team or to the army. We need to use the word of God as a mighty weapon against Satan. We need to speak it and share it and live it. So we're to be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power, firstly by making sure that we put on all of that armour that God has already given us. And then, says the Apostle Paul, we must pray. The armour helps us to stand firm in all that God has already done for us. But it is by wielding the sword and through prayer that we advance. A goalkeeper or soldier fully kitted out is going to be pretty ineffective if they just stand there and remain in one place, taking no part in the game or the battle. Pretty soon the enemy is going to realise that they're no threat and just move around them. The armour reminds us what God has done for us in the past and we need to rely on that. But prayer enables us to depend on him for the future. Pray in the spirit, says Paul. Pray, 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 pray. Four times he says it. That's how important it is. Pray on all occasions with all kinds of prayers, with all perseverance, for all the Lord's people. Is that an apt description of your prayer life or mine? It doesn't matter if you're five or if you're 105, every believer needs to be consistent in prayer. Pray on your own. Pray with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Avail yourself of every opportunity for prayer. Pray for those believers who are suffering and persecuted. Pray for those involved in ministry. Pray for every believer that each one might boldly proclaim the mystery of the gospel and that together we would be that shining example of the manifold wisdom of God. 
Well, this letter to the Ephesian church concludes with these final greetings. Tychicus, dear brother and faithful servant in the Lord, will tell you everything, so that you also may know how I am and what I am doing. I'm sending him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage you. Peace to the brothers and sisters and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. And with these simple words, Paul offers us a very important insight into his own ministry and into the way in which Christians should engage in this spiritual battle. We do it as he did together. Tychicus, we know of him from the book of Acts, but he wasn't the only one of Paul's co-workers mentioned in Acts. Mentioned with him are Sophita, Aristarchus, Secundus, Gaius, Timothy and Trophimus, but even they weren't the only ones. Elsewhere we read of Luke and Mark and Priscilla and Aquila and Phoebe and Onesimus and Justus and Epaphras and Demas and others. Each of them played a role in this ministry team, each one according to their gifts and abilities. They weren't all gifted evangelists like the Apostle Paul. Some of them were his travelling companions. Perhaps they attended to the practical matters on his various journeys. Some went ahead to prepare the way. Some remained behind to nurture the newly planted churches. Some served as messengers. All of them, without doubt, were a great encouragement to one another, both in prayer and in practical support. He needed them and they needed him. Christian life is not meant to be lived alone. Neither are we to be lone rangers in ministry. We need to be praying for one another. We need to be holding one another accountable. We need to be encouraging one another. We need to have one another's backs to look out for one another when the going gets tough. We need to be building one another up, spurring one another on in faith, loving and being loved in return. And I come back to that image of the Roman soldiers lined up for battle in their full armour gear behind the shields there as they locked their shields together in formation and those behind held theirs overhead. We see something similar in our, in our riot police today. Together they move forward as a team, a united front, deflecting the enemy's flaming arrows, spurring one another on and on, stronger and better together. That, I believe, is the lasting impression that Paul gives us in this final greeting with the message of, or the mention of Tychicus. His concluding blessing, peace, love and grace, provides a very simple three-word summary of the entire book. Peace, our reconciliation with God and with one another that comes through Christ, who destroyed those dividing walls of his hostility. We remember that from chapter 2, verses 13 to 14. 
love which is wide and long and high and deep. We remember that from chapter 3, verse 18. Love which is the defining mark of our new lives in Christ, chapter 5, verse 2, without which all uh, doctrinal knowledge is worthless. And grace, that undeserved and extravagant kindness of God expressed to us in Christ. We read of that, chapter 2, verse 7 which is the source of the mystery of the gospel for which we are all ambassadors, chapter 6, verse 20. No one enters into battle expecting it to be easy. And as those troops stormed those beaches in Normandy, their eyes set on the victory ahead, did they imagine that six, eight, ten months later they would still be fighting and their companions would still be falling around them as they faced a well-trained, well-equipped, battle-hardened enemy who fought savagely. The battle will not be easy, but we have everything that we need to prevail. We just need to use it. So let's keep our armour on and let's learn how to use it well. Are you a warrior? Stop worrying. Put on the sandals of peace and be an agent of peace in the lives of others. Don't be tempted to doubt. Remember that helmet of salvation that is on your head. Don't let Satan mess with your mind. Trust in that shield of faith to deflect the fiery arrows of the enemy. Keep your belt of truth nice and tight around your waist. Don't allow sin to let it slip down and leave you vulnerable. Stand tall in that breastplate of righteousness knowing that you have already been declared righteous by God, allow his spirit to continue to do that good work in your life and keep your sword sharp by immersing ourselves in the word of God and pray and let your prayers be mighty prayer warrior prayers. Above all else, remember these two things. Firstly, we are engaged in battle. So if it doesn't feel like a battle, then we probably need to ask ourselves why. Perhaps we've spent too long hiding in the trenches or being too far away from where the action is, is happening. And the enemy's happy to leave us alone there because we're not a threat to anyone there. And finally, don't forget the outcome. When trials come, when you find yourself personally under attack for your faith, when it feels like maybe you just can't take it anymore, remember that the end of this story has already been written and it reads like this, we win. And one day we'll all celebrate that greatest of victories together in heaven. Would you join with me in prayer? Thank you, Father, for this wonderful letter that has been preserved through the ages for us, so rich and yet so very practical. Lord, help us to live it as we seek to be a people who are like your trophy cabinet, displaying your very great wisdom for all the world to see. Amen. Well, I've chosen a medley of two songs to conclude our time together this morning that I think capture the essence of that victory in Christ. Jesus paid it all and crown him with many crowns. But first... Let me bless you with Paul's own blessing. 
for the Ephesian Christians. Peace to you, brothers and sisters, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. See